Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Well, let's jump in. Uh, Ezra 4, chapter 1 through 5. When the armies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple, I'm sorry, not the armies. Judah and Benjamin have no armies. Uh, they, they barely came back with people to build the temple. Uh, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. I think this is an interesting and important point. So it tells us right off the, the bat that this is a disingenuous uh, offer, that they don't really want to help. It says they're the enemies of Benjamin and Judah. So they're coming to sabotage. I think the part of the point that's important to uh, the author of Ezra, though, is that I think their refusal to let these people help them, it's not snobbery and it's not uh, pride. I think it's actually really good because part of the problem, the temple got corrupted because it was in so many people were involved in it. It was, it became a place of worship for so many people, not people who truly worshiped only the, the God of Israel. And I think that's part of what they recognize here is that these people are claiming, yeah, we worship your God. Um, but even as they describe it, you know, that we've worshiped your God since, since the time of the king of Assyria. That's weird. The king of Assyria certainly didn't worship the God of Israel. So I think they're saying we worship your God as well as other gods. Um, and so I think they're like, no, this is us. This is who we are. This is part of what we do. This is part of our restoration. You, this isn't really your restoration. This isn't your repentance. You're not really coming back to our God. Um, so this is for us to do. And so I think it's actually a sign of sort of their seriousness and their and their purity of coming back to the temple. And because we know their enemies, it also proves to be wise because really they probably just wanted to sabotage the whole thing. And we'll see that later in their ongoing response. For now, it goes on. It says, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. So they're like, well, if we can't help you, then we'll just, we'll try to make you be afraid to do it. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We've talked so much about the mysterious Darius during Daniel's time. Let me be clear and say, this is the not mysterious Darius. We know of a Darius after Cyrus. And that is not a question that historically we're very familiar with. This is not the same Darius we've been confused about. Part of the confusion is the fact that there is another Darius and that's the one we're talking about. So this is saying all the way from Cyrus through to Darius, um, they, they tried to frustrate their plans to build the temple. The, the, the people around them really, really worked against them. So that's the atmosphere in Jerusalem. They've been sent back. They're going to build the temple. And they have enemies already right out the gate who are trying to sabotage them by any means necessary. First by pretending to help them. And then when that doesn't work, by, pretend, by trying to discourage them. And then when that doesn't work, by bribing people around them to not provide the materials or not provide the support that they've been promised, those kind of things. Um, so that's what we see. That's what's going on here. Any comments on this before we move forward? Yeah, I have a question. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people returned. Obviously, they did not all settle in Jerusalem. They settled in the outlying area. Was it all considered Israel and 
these enemies lived outside of that geographical area or were they all mixed in together? That's a really good question. So we, in general, I'm guessing that, so we know about 40,000 came back and we know that they're all there to, to build the temple. So it did say they all went back to their own towns, but my guess is that they're all people that are very close to Judah and Jerusalem. So they're probably all from Southern Israel. There is no real Israel at this point. I mean, I think like you are alluding to, there, there's there, there, there's either nobody there or there's people just living amidst them. And I think the truth is there's probably all sorts of people around them. So when it says they're neighboring people, it's people who are right there. They're in the same general area. Now, Jerusalem may have been pretty much abandoned. So if they resettle in Jerusalem, which they are doing at least in part, that's probably mostly just them. Um, but yeah, there's no sort of clear Israel borders at this point. That's part of what Nehemiah is going to come in to do is build a wall just for Jerusalem, just for the city of Jerusalem, let alone Israel. So there's there's no real borders at this point. It's just kind of mushy. Um, they're allowed to come back. The whole thing is ruled by Persia. So theoretically, they're safe because Cyrus has told them to go back. Um, but yeah, it's all pretty mushy at this point. Any so, other questions? So then, the, so then these enemies could be next door neighbors or living down the street. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Anybody else? Cool. Uh, First Chronicles 3, 19 through 24. This is just, we read a piece of Second Chronicles last week. Um, and now this is First Chronicles 3. This is the same thing. This is just a list of people who have come back. It's really short. Um, the sons, it mentions Zerubbabel, and we just had a little comment about Zerubbabel being one of the leaders, because they come to Zerubbabel to say we want to build. So he's one of the leaders, so this is what it says in First Chronicles 3. Uh, the sons of Zerubbabel, Meshulam, and Hananiah, Shalosmith was their sister. There were also five others, Hashabah, Ohel, Berechiah, Hasadiah, and Juhab Hased, the descendants of Hananiah, Palatiah, and Joshiah, and the sons of Raphiah, of Arnon, of Obadiah, and of Shechaniah. The descendants of Shechaniah, Shemaiah, and his sons, Hattush, Egal, Bariah, Neriah, and Shaphat, six in all. The sons of Neriah, Albani, Hezekiah, and Arzakam, three in all. The sons of Elani, Hadaviah, Alishib, Pedaliah, Akub, Johan, Deliah, and, and Anani, seven in all. So again, this is just part of tracing the lineage um, of people who have come back and, and reminding us of this continuity, that they are Israelites, they are Jews, um, and that's why they're back. Um, I don't expect it, but I, you guys sometimes surprise me. Any comments on this? Can you imagine calling them to dinner? <laughs> I almost got it through the nose. I almost got it through the nose. <laughs> yeah, good try. You almost got a spit take. Yeah, not quite though. Um, I, uh, I just, on at Focus on Sunday, I was just, I was teaching on John and James and I just happened to comment that they, they are sons of Zebedee. I think Zebedee is one of the great biblical names. I just love saying Zebedee. It just, you just have to try saying it. It's just so much fun. Okay, so uh, I, it's, uh, my kids are lucky we didn't name any of them Zebedee. Actually, they're just lucky that my wife is uh, able to curb those whims of mine. I would have named my kids all sorts of weird things. All right, so that, that's, that's what's going on in Ezra. I mean, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. Um, and now we're gonna go back to Daniel. So meanwhile, back in Persia, uh, former Babylonia, where Daniel is a, a high official, um, as he has been for years in, in a couple of different empires now. We come to Daniel chapter 10. 
says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war, and the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So this is a very Hebraic approach. They're giving us the overview, and then they're going to go into the details. So the rest of the three chapters are the details of what we just saw an overview of, the overview being that Daniel receives a vision about a war, a great war, a vision which is true. Um, shouldn't be surprised, but I think what it means partly by that is that it's, it's going to actually happen and it's not just a metaphor. Um, I think that might be what it means because it's odd to say that any vision from God would be untrue. Um, I think it's implicit uh, that it would be true. But it tells us about this. And then it says the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. And this is like the overview. And then we jump into Daniel writing in first person uh, about the vision. And he says this. At that time, I, Daniel, was mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. The question is, why is Daniel mourning? So this is actually a great moment. Daniel prayed for restoration. Restoration is happening. People are going back to Jerusalem. We don't know why Daniel's mourning. There, we, there's a, a couple of speculations. One is that he's mourning because perhaps so few went back. Maybe we talked about the fact we don't know if there's disappointment in the fact that only 40,000 people went back or if that's actually really good, given that it's just people going back to build the temple. That's a pretty good, good construction crew. Um, but maybe that's what Daniel's mourning. Maybe he's like, why did so few people go back? There's so many people that should go back. Um, or maybe Daniel's mourning the opposition. Maybe it's that they went back and they're immediately being attacked, uh, at least verbally. Um, they're immediately being opposed by enemies, and maybe Daniel's just mourning about that. We don't really know, but we know that he's going through this three-week fast and this three-week mourning. The other question you might ask is, why didn't Daniel go back? But I think there's two really good reasons that Daniel didn't go back. We know Daniel's very faithful, and has always done what God wanted him to do, and has never sort of uh, shied away from it. So I don't think there's anything untoward here, but I think two reasons he didn't go back. One is he's about 84, so he's, he's in his 80s, best reckoning puts him about 84 years old. He's an old man. Um, he's not going to be a lot of help going back to rebuild the temple, but he is going to be a lot of help remaining a high official in Persia. Um, so the truth is he's a lot more useful to the Israelites where he is than he would be if he left and went back to Jerusalem. So I, I think his, his staying where he is is probably the wise course. It's probably exactly what God asked him to do. Um, so for whatever reason, though, he's mourning He's, he's for three weeks, he's praying and he's fasting and he's mourning. He's asking God maybe to complete the temple. He's asking God maybe to take care of the enemies. He's, he's just praying for this restoration to complete. Maybe it's just going slower than he wanted. Maybe like we talked about last week, he's just one of those people. He came as a young man. Maybe he kind of remembers what the temple was like and is just mourning the fact that they have to do this, you know, at all. Um, he's just remembering the glory days and realizing or even not the not so glory days, but realizing how far they've fallen in from, even from that. So whatever it is, he's mourning. And then it says this. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a, was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. It's easy to read those words and sort of 
move on quickly, but it, it, this is an extremely impressive figure. And remember, Daniel's just trying to describe it to us. It, the, this whole thing is, it was like this. It looked like topaz. And you can almost feel him kind of stretching to figure out how to even describe what he's seeing. It's just crazy. It's bright and it's pure and it's beautiful and it's sparkling and it's terrifying and it's strong. And then when this thing speaks, it sounds like a crowd. It sounds like in another place, he says like rushing water. You know, it's just, you can, this is just a very, very, I think to say terrifying and imposing is actually to understate it. Um, he says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it. So here he is, he's standing at the Tigris and he sees this incredibly terrifying figure and nobody with him sees it. He's like, can you guys not see that? But there is something fascinating that happens. Even though they don't see it, it says this, such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So they don't see what Daniel sees. And yet the mere presence of this is so terrifying to them, even without seeing it, that they run off. So somehow they feel it, they intuit it, whatever it is. Or maybe Daniel describes it to them so clearly and they trust Daniel so much that they're terrified. Either way, they run off and they hide. And so he says, so I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Again, a very understandable reaction to what he's seeing. Then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling, trembling on my hands and knees. It seems to me, you, I, I don't know this, but the term deep sleep here seems to me like fainted. That, that's what it feels like to me. Um, it feels like he's saying, I, I just passed out. This was so terrifying when he began to speak that I collapsed to the ground and a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So then this hand reached down and woke me up and set me on my hands and knees, basically just at least lifted me up from my face to like a crawl. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. So this terrifying figure, you know, and, and again, if you think of this in sort of human terms, you know, as, as we can understand them, here this angel comes, he's incredibly imposing and Daniel falls on his face in a deep sleep, he says, so it sounds like a faint to me, the, the angel reaches down and wakes him up and, and lifts him as far as his hands and knees, like just kind of gets him off his face. And then the first thing he says to him is, Daniel, you're loved, you're esteemed, which would be a really relieving thing to hear from somebody that you're quite sure could just destroy you with a, a blink. You know, I, I think Daniel's terrified of what he sees. So when the first thing that's said to him is, you're highly esteemed, you're loved, and then he says, stand up and listen, I have a message for you specifically because I've been sent to talk to you. It's a really encouraging message. And so Daniel stands up. He says, when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. So he does stand, um, but he's obviously still, very, this is still a, a, a very scary experience. So the angel goes on. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words would hurt, were heard, and I have come in response to them. Now, I think what he means by this when he says, from the very first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourselves before your God, I don't think he means ever, because that happened when Daniel was a child. I don't think that's what he means. I think he means three weeks ago. When you started praying, we know that he's been fasting and praying and mourning for three weeks. I think he's been trying to understand what's going on. Why is the restoration going so slowly? And the angel says, from that moment, 
I was sent to you and I've come in response to them, which again is, is the angel just being encouraging. I'm not here to rebuke you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here because you've done something wrong. I want you to know I'm here because, because you're loved, because you're esteemed, because you've been seeking God. And then he says this very strange thing. He says, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, three weeks. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Okay, this is super mysterious. And the truth is, nobody has really ever given a good explanation that, that, that is satisfying to me. I, I don't understand it, and I don't know that anyone understands it. At least if they do, they haven't communicated it in a way that I believe them. Perhaps they're correct, and I'm not. But there's clearly some sort of spiritual uh, interaction being described here. And it seems clear that the references to Prince of Persia and King of Persia aren't referring to the human princes and human kings. It could be, but it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like, given the description of the figure here, that the Prince of Persia could have stopped this angel from coming to Daniel. So it sounds like we're being given some insight into what behind the scenes spiritual interactions. We're being told that what happens sort of physically in the world is only a reflection of things that are happening in the background spiritually. Even with that being the case, it's still a very, very peculiar paragraph because we know that God is not really ever powerless. And if he wanted this angel to get through, there's no demon, there's no other spiritual force that could prevent uh, this angel, probably Gabriel, from getting through. It's not like God really has to send Michael because Michael's more powerful than God. It's, it's a weird sort of thing. Why is the interaction play out this way? But it's no weirder than the fact that the interactions in our human life play out that way too, right? We act as if we do things and God is, you know, we have to do things or God can't accomplish them. He gives us agency. So, so it, it makes sense he might do that in the spiritual realm, but it's still all peculiar. I will say that this is, we talked last week about Left Behind and sort of the influence it has. Well, there's another uh, influential uh, book that came out around the same generation, and that's Frank Peretti's books. Um, into this present darkness and um, uh, what, piercing the darkness. I can't remember the names of all his books, but uh, a number of stories he wrote, which in which he describes the power of prayer as after give, as actually giving power to angels. So he he it seems based very much on this passage and passages. Well, I would say passages like this, but the truth is this is the only passage in scripture like this. That's the other thing that makes this weird. We don't see this kind of glimpse elsewhere in scripture. But this is where Peretti comes from, this idea of a spiritual battle and like Daniel's prayers gave power. Although it doesn't say that here, you could make that implication. All that is to say, I don't know what's happening here. I don't really understand it. I think the only things we can take from it with any certainty is that there is a spiritual realm and there are things happening there that are reflected in the historical realm, or at least can be described in ways we would understand. So maybe he calls whatever he was in, he was interacting with the Prince of Persia so that Daniel will understand. But whatever the situation is, it's a spiritual realm. It's kind of beyond our understanding. It's odd. It's peculiar. We, I can't really reconcile it all with my understanding of things. But you know what? I wouldn't expect that the spiritual realm would be something I could easily reconcile. Um, so we don't know what it means, but this is what he tells Daniel. And I think the other thing we can see from this is, again, shows the amount of sort of information that's being given to Daniel. I mean, it, right off the bat, it's like, hey, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody. Hey, I'm going to give you a, 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 a picture of the world that I've never given anybody. Um, so right off the bat, we can see Daniel's engaged in something very special here. 
that he's going to hear things that nobody else is, has heard or is hearing. And he goes on and he says this. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. I want to stress that he says here, I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. As you look at scripture, although it's true that scripture is intended to show everybody who God is, and that ultimately the Bible today goes out to Gentiles all over the world, and that Gentiles are part of the kingdom, it's clear that scripture is written from the history and perspective of the Israelites, right? That's, that's not, a, that's not a, a radical statement. All the focus is what happens in their world. We're not reading about China. We're not reading about other Middle Eastern countries, except as they apply to Israel. And in the same way here, he's about to say everything I'm going to share with you. It's not the full history of what's to come, but it's all the history that matters to you guys. It's all the history that's relevant to, you, not all the history, but it's history that is relevant to where you guys are coming from, because I want you to know what's going to happen to your people, which I think is because that's what Daniel's been praying about. Are we going to get restored? What is going to happen? And the sort of sad news of what God shares with Daniel, as we'll see, is that the restoration is not by any means going to lead them into a new glorious Davidic kingdom. Uh, and then instead, the next 400 years are going to be really hard. They're going to be filled with continued battles and continued fighting, and Jerusalem is going to be in the middle of all of it. And so in that sense, it's not the most encouraging message. On the other hand, there is such specificity in what Daniel shares. It is awe-inspiring. I mean, it is amazing. Daniel, th this is a moment where Daniel shares history of the next 400 years with some incredible specifics, some of the political intrigue, some of the, not just the nations, not just broad terms, but specifically what's going to happen coming up over the next three or 400 years. In fact, it is so astounding and it is so specific that is this chapter, it is 10, 11, and 12, it is this section that leads uh, the, the historians and critics to say, this must be written 400 years later than it claims to be written. This must be written not by Daniel, but by somebody using the name of Daniel to explain the history that's happened and explain how God was involved in it. And that's an understandable response because your only two choices as we read through this passage, your only two options, there just is not room. There's, there's, there's so little ambiguity. There's so much specificity that your only two options as you read these chapters is to either believe in the supernatural power of prophecy and believe that what we're reading is actually God predicting the future through Daniel or that it was written 400 years later. Now, because I have no problem believing scripture is supernatural and is written by God through people, it doesn't bother me to think that he might, in this instance, be giving very specific prophecy to Daniel. And so I believe this is the same Daniel I believe it is written 400 years before the events, but I do understand why if you do not believe in the supernatural aspects of the Bible, you are forced, literally forced to read this as coming 400 years later. What I want you guys to understand is that's how clear this is. If a prophecy was that clear, that's what you would expect. There can be no explanation for it, except that it's either supernatural or it was written much later. And, and that's the choice you're forced to make as you read Daniel. And so I'm going to share with you what I'm, we're going to go through it. I'm going to share what he says, and I'm going to give you the history that unfolds piece by piece, line by line as we go. And um, so that you can see how specific, kind of how incredible it is, um, how amazing it is that this unfolds in the way it does. And we have the, the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of history to understand it all. This must have been completely overwhelming to Daniel because he understands the vague terms, the generalities, no doubt. 
but it's also just got to be incredibly overwhelming. All of this detail that he's like, I don't even understand what's happening and what we're looking at. Um, okay, having said that, here's the other thing. These next two chapters do talk about events that we know unfold in the next 400 years. And to deny that or to overlook that or to insist that it cannot be prophecy related to the next 400 years is to miss how astounding this truly is. It is to say that, well, it's just coincidence. Well, that, even the people who don't believe in supernatural prophecy don't believe this is coincidence. They believe it's such a clear depiction of history that it had to have been written after the history happened. But so if you insist that this prophecy can only refer to very, very future end times, you miss sort of the beauty of it. Having said that, there's no reason that this couldn't be both a prophecy of the next 400 years as well as a prophecy of the end times. We've already seen many prophecies which are layered. We know that Isaiah made prophecies which took place in his lifetime and then also took place in the lifetime of Jesus. And we know that because Bible, the Bible clearly tells us both instances. It shows us the history of the prophecies Isaiah, Isaiah made when they were unfolded in his time. And then the gospel writers show us how they also apply to Jesus. So we know that the prophecy sometimes is this way. The other thing we know is that scripture is filled with pictures and foreshadowings and types of things to come. We know that a lot of the ceremonies they do are actually pictures of the Messiah to come. We know that various people from David to Ezekiel to Daniel are what we call types of Jesus. They are pictures of the Messiah to come. And so what we're going to read about in this passage is some events that happened over the next 400 years, but many people believe they are also types and pictures and foreshadowings of what is to come at the end of the world, at the end of, of the world as we know it, um, at the end of time. And I, I, uh, on a personal level, I think that's correct. That makes sense to me. But I want you to not miss how astounding it is that we know historically much of this has already unfolded. It could, again, unfold in another way coming forward, but I don't want you to miss how amazing it is that God predicted the next 400 years of Israelite, uh, of, of their nation. All right, so here we go. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face to the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. And I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. I think the vision he's talking about is the creature himself. I don't think he's had the unfolding of everything he's going to share yet. But I think he's saying, I can't even have this conversation with you because I am just overwhelmed with who you are. I'm overwhelmed with what you look like. I can't. How am I going to listen? I'm, I, this is too much for me. You're, you're trying to give me this information, and I can't even receive it because I can't even receive what's in front of me. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. So he kind of supernaturally gives him grace to be able to withstand what's happening. And at the same time, gives him the encouraging words, repeats again, do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. Daniel, it's okay. I know I'm, I'm an impressive figure to you. But remember, I'm here because we love you. The word highly esteemed, by the way, can be translated dearly beloved. It, 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 it does have a sense of actually respect, which is almost even more amazing coming from an angel or from God, but it also has the sense of affection. So he is saying to Daniel, we love you. It's okay. We're not here to hurt you. We're not here to challenge you. Yes, we could wipe you out, but it's okay. We're on your side. Again, all intended to be very encouraging. Do not be afraid. You are highly esteemed. He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. So it's interesting that the very beginning of this vision, most of it, oh, here comes Jolene. It's interesting that the very beginning of this vision, most of it is the angel just having to kind of prop up Daniel. 
and say, you can do it. Hey, hey, Jolene, oh, she's not here yet, hold on. Connecting to audio. Hey, Jolene, welcome. We're on Daniel chapter 10 and we just began Daniel chapter 10, just so you know where we are. So he's, this beginning is as again, before we even get into the vision, so much of it is just him saying over and over, you're esteemed, we love you, be encouraged, don't be afraid, it's okay just to get to the point where Daniel can even receive the message that's coming. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he's like, okay, now I'm ready. <laughs> you, you made me possible. You made me capable of accepting what you're giving me. Now I'm ready. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So here again, weird phrasing. We don't really understand what's going on in the backgrounds. Why are these angels fighting? Why are they attached to certain nations? None of this quite makes sense to us, but it does tell us something right off the bat that Persia is going to be followed by Greece. So here's the first very specific, and it gets more specific, but here's the first very specific prophecy is that Persia, this incredible kingdom, which has just taken over, this is very early in the Persian reign, is going to be replaced by Greece. And, and so that in itself is kind of a blow your mind. Wait a minute, Greece, that, that, those islands over there um, is going to actually take over Persia. So it, it starts with that kind of big news. And then we're going to kind of, again, pull back to the specific. He says, but first, first meaning before I leave to go back to my battles with the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece, again, blow your mind kind of what's going on here. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And this is where I told you this drives me nuts. That's the end of chapter 10. It's the middle of a sentence. Literally, the chapter heading breaks up a sentence. I do not understand this. It makes it very confusing because chapter 11, verse 1, starts with, um, starts with, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. And you don't know who that is. Is that Daniel? Is Why are we talking about Darius the Mede again? He's much earlier. It's incredibly confusing. But if you take out the chapter heading, you realize it's not confusing. It's the angel still talking. And he says this, no one supports me against them. Who? The Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece. Again, why does no one support him? I don't know. Again, we don't understand what's happening in these behind the scenes battles. But he says, no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Your prince, is that Israel's prince in the way that there's, again, who knows? But he says this, no one supports me except your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So all he's saying is, I have been engaged in these battles that affect Israel going back at least to Darius. And, and from Darius, I now go to Persia. And from Persia, I'm going to go to Greece. So he's just sort of, it's an aside. It's a parenthetical statement that, hey, I've been, I've been on your side from the beginning, Daniel. That chapter heading is nuts. I do not understand why it's there. That's my rant. I'll leave it at that. You all, you, you can all now, if you haven't known before, you now know. Sometimes I hate chapter headings. Okay. But then we get to the heart of, of chapter 11. And this is a prophecy, as I said, it's so specific that you are left with either saying, this really is an amazing, awe-inspiring, supernatural proof of God's sovereignty and prophecy, or Daniel wrote this years and years later, or Daniel didn't write it, someone else wrote it hundreds of years later, um, and it, because it's that specific, there isn't room to say Daniel got lucky. There isn't room to say Daniel said vague things, which we can interpret however we want. It is incredibly detailed and thorough and specific, and it tracks 
over the next 400 years of history. Um, it is that amazing. Before we jump into chapter 11 and, and walk through this, does anybody have any comments, any thoughts, anything stand out to you from this initial interaction between Daniel and this uh, angel? Well, um, he's like, but first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Does that mean, just mean like what's gonna happen? I think so, because what he tells him is the history that's coming. So is that is there literally a book that God has, or is it just a way of saying this is how things are going to unfold? Yeah. He can't, he kind of seems to emphasize um, the word truth. Like he did there, and then he says, I tell you the truth. Sure. Yeah, he wants him to know that what he's going to tell him is true. It is real. It is actually going to happen. This is not some... Uh, vision that it, it's not a vision of a statue it's very specific detailed factual truth which by the way some of it lines up with the, the visions that daniel's already had and the vision that the pharaoh that the not the pharaoh that the king of uh that nebuchadnezzar had and the vision that others have had so it does line up with the visions we've already seen daniel going through which talked about the kingdoms to come um and so it does line up with that, but this is much more detailed, much more factual, much more specific. And I think that's part of the point of talking about the truth and emphasizing the truth. Well, I was kind of wondering if maybe also was, you know, they're fighting the Prince of Persia and stuff. Um, maybe it was also kind of like against deception, but maybe not. I mean, it makes sense what you're saying about the like it actually happened happening i mean it could be the, the truth is that it's, it's hard to make a lot of theology based upon what the the angel says here because it's not even like this is an important point to him it's not like he's saying to daniel the first thing you need to understand is how these battles work it's almost like that's an aside he's like sorry i'm late i was busy fighting the prince of persia and you're like what the heck i don't even understand that but but he's just he's just like it's just an aside you know he's like oh and i've been supporting you guys from the beginning um, even though nobody else except Michael does. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's almost, if you take out the sort of weirdness of it, it's the kind of things Paul would say in his letters, you know, oh, I was over here. And so I couldn't come see you right away, you know, and, and it's almost like, it's just for the angels, just sort of natural talk. He's not even maybe thinking about how weird this would sound to Daniel. I don't know. Um, so it feels like an aside, but certainly how do these fights occur? You know, the new Testament indicates that the the, the devil fights through deception and fights through lies and we win through truth. So that might not be a coincidence. Yeah, there might be some emphasis there intentionally to kind of drive home. That's how the spiritual battles fought. That's certainly possible. Well, Any I'm not making thoughts? a theology out of this or anything, but it kind of made me think of like when the angel came to Joshua and Joshua was like, are you for us or against us? And he's kind of like, um, I'm on the side of truth. <laughs> I'm with God. <laughs> sure. Sure. Anybody else? All right, very cool. So here we go. Let's press on. Now then, to Meredith's point and to the discussion we just had at least, now then I tell you the truth, he says. Three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. So right now, Cyrus is leaving. Cyrus is the king. He then says, three more will arise and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. So Cyrus is the current king and he reigns from 550 to 530. After Cyrus, we have the Persian king Cambyses II, 
Now he's the oldest son of Cyrus and his one of his wives, or maybe his only wife. I'm not clear if Cyrus had multiple wives or not. Um, he's the oldest son of Cyrus and Cassandane, and he reigns from 530 to 522 BC. And he's the one, if you remember that map, I should have brought it, but I forgot. If you remember that map from last week, he's the one that adds Egypt and Libya and some of that other area that Cyrus didn't quite get. And he reigns for about eight years, eight or nine years from 530 to 522. And he's Cyrus's son, so it's, it's following a, a particular lineage. Then we have somebody named Bardiya, who is sometimes called Smerdes. Everybody agrees these are the same people. Um, and he's the brother of Cambyses II. So in other words, he's another son of Cyrus, but he's not the son that gets selected to be king. And according to sources, he was made a governor of the Eastern provinces at the same time that Cambyses was made king. So Cyrus says, in my succession, this is how it will work. Cambyses will be the king and uh, Bar Bardira or, or Bardia, Bardia, sounds like such a fake name. Bardia will be the governor uh, of the region. Now, at this point, it's really interesting because history tells us two different stories and we don't know which one is true. It's possible they're both true um, if there's a, a fair amount of deception involved here, but it makes a difference, but we'll never know. Uh, this side of heaven, for sure, there's no way we will ever be able to determine which of these is true, barring some amazing archeological discovery, which just writes it out for us somehow in proof. Because here's what happens. What we do know, according to all versions of history, is that in 522 BC, while Cambyses was in Egypt, sort of keeping things there, someone who claimed to be Bardia took over the throne. So while Cambyses is in Egypt, Bardia, presumably, comes forward and takes over the throne, says, I should be the rightful king. I'm the son that should have been the king. Cambyses is a fraud. And to sort of gain the approval of people, he says, I'm going to remove all taxation for three years. So some things never change, right? You want to get elected, you just promise not to take people's money. So he says, I'm going to get rid of all taxation for three years. A ridiculous promise for a king, by the way, because that is the only way that they do anything. But he says, I'm going to remove all taxation and I should be the rightful king. And so he basically takes over the throne. Before Cambyses can respond, as he's getting ready to come back with an army to, to get rid of his brother, Cambyses actually dies of an infection. He dies of a disease while he's abroad. And Bardia is seen by everybody there as the best replacement. He's already promised he's going to get rid of taxation. And he, said, and he is, in fact, the rightful son. Except that one version of this story tells us that he's not, in fact, Bardia. That in fact, what happened is that Cambyses executed Bardia years before, but he did it secretly because he knew there were people who were loyal to him. So he secretly executes his brother, so there's no threat. And then this, this mage, this mage from Mede, this Median mage uh, by the name of, I always will say Gutama, uh, uh, but that's not it, that's, that's Buddha, hold on. His name is Gumata, very close. This median mage named Gumata pretends to be Bardia because nobody knows that Bardia is dead, except presumably this mage knew somehow. So he pretends to be Bardia, claims to be Bardia so he can take over the throne. And that Cambyses knows this, and that's one of the reasons he's coming back, but he doesn't ever get back to disprove it. So this guy becomes the king, even though he's not of the right lineage at all, and he's not even Persian, he's median and he ends up becoming king. We don't know which of these is true. We don't know if it's actually Bardia or if it's a guy who is pretending to be Bardia. Fascinating story either way, but either way, this Bardia is the, this person who claims to be Bardia is the third um, 
is the third is the king after Cambyses. So he's the third. So we have Cyrus, and then we were told there would be three more. So he's the second of those three more. But he only lasts for about a year. So with all this intrigue and all this question of who he actually is, he's apparently not good enough to hold on to his throne. And there was a there was seven conspirators who decide to remove Bardia from the throne and put one of themselves in. They do this very strange competition and ritual to decide which, uh, according to legend, to decide which of the seven gets to actually become uh, the new king. And one of those seven co conspirators was a spear bearer for Bardia. In other words, he was the guy who, who worked right with Bardia. And his name uh, is Darius. And this is the Darius we know about. And Darius ends up becoming, he wins their competition, he becomes the king after Bardia, after the seven conspirators assass assassinate Bardia, Darius becomes the king, and Bardia didn't even, didn't, even, didn't even make it a whole year. So 522, he's king. By the end of 522, he's not king. And Darius then reigns from 522 to 486 BC. He, he has a pretty good hold on it. He reigns for about 20, 40 years. Uh, Darius incorporated Macedonia and a number of Aegean islands. That means he began to reach out, reach out to take over the Greeks. And so he begins to incorporate them into the empire. Uh, he's, he, uh, Egypt's already been taken by his grandfather. Uh, well, not his grandfather, but his previous king. Um, and so he's going to reach out to Greece. He's going to start taking them. But these Greek islands resist. From the very beginning, they begin to fight back in a way that Persia isn't used to it. Maybe it's because they're islands. Maybe it's because their navy is good. We don't know exactly why. Maybe it's God. Um, it's probably God no matter what. But they, they resist, and he does not successfully uh, conquer them all. In fact, Darius encounters really Persia's first sort of significant defeat um, at a place called Marathon. Yes, a Greek, Greek city. Place called Marathon in 490 BC. Now, he still ultimately holds the Greek islands in check. He still kind of has the upper hand but he kind of pulls back and he, he spends less time attacking them. After Darius, we have Xerxes. Xerxes was the son of Darius and Darius had married the daughter of Cyrus. So I don't know if you're getting lost in the family tree here, but, but basically Darius took a page from Cyrus's journal, uh, his sort of blueprint, and he said, you know, Cyrus liked to make himself as legitimate as possible whenever he took over. So what Darius does is he, he's totally unrelated to Cyrus. But in order to give himself some legitimacy in his throne, he marries Cyrus's daughter to give himself a lineage back to the original uh, king. And so uh, they have a son, um, and that son is, is Xerxes. And that Xerxes is the same Xerxes we see in the book of Esther. So when we get to Esther, we'll see Xerxes, king of Persia, we'll learn about him. And this Xerxes is awful. History and scripture both record him as somewhat of a buffoon. He's not a good leader. He does not do well. Um, and he doesn't lead Persia to great glory. In fact, what happens is he really gets engaged in a 30-year war with the Greeks that he can't win. Um, and he loses repeatedly campaign after campaign to the Greeks. And this is how the Greeks begin to gain the upper hand and begin to move towards their domination. Now, Xerxes is not the last king of um, Persia. There's more, but historically, the rest of them are all just monitoring the decline of Persia and the ascension of Greece. 
And so what happens is the angel is describing this as he says, there will be these three kings and then the fourth one will be richer than all of them. When we get to the book of Esther, you'll see, in fact, this is true. Xerxes is fabulously wealthy he, and he takes basically, that's part of the problem is he takes all of the wealth of, of Persia and instead of using it as his predecessors did to really expand the kingdom well, he, he just kind of squanders it. He wastes it on himself. So he's fabulously rich. He's fabulously wealthy, but he's a terrible king and he sort of ushers in the, the decline of Persia and he ushers in the ascension of Greece by continuing this fruitless campaign against them so much that they get more and more powerful in the eyes of the world and in reality. And so the angel stops here. He just mentions these four kings, mentions the king that's going to come that's had more wealth, and then he jumps ahead to Greece because nothing else that happens between Xerxes and Greece really affects Israel much. Nothing changes until Greece begins to take over. And this is what he says about Xerxes. The angel says, when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So he stirs up everybody to kind of get engaged in this battle, although he continues to lose. And that's when it says this, then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And this is Alexander the Great. This is the great Greek ruler, the conqueror, the person who is responsible for the ultimate ascendancy of Greece, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is just a fascinating character in history. I won't go into huge amounts of detail, um, but if you have any interest at all, man, just Google and read up on it. His, his connections to various interesting historical figures are, are there. In fact, his tutor, his philosophy tutor is Aristotle. So as the Greeks are beginning to ascend in philosophy, you've got Plato, you've got Socrates, you've got Aristotle, who's the, 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 the student of Socrates. And then Aristotle, who part of his, part of his philosophical sort of uh, expertise was in the kinds of governments. And he talks about whether a democracy would be best or a republic would be best. And what he does is for each one, he talks about what the best version would be. And he talks about a dictator and what the best version would be. And his description of the most successful dictator is pretty much the blueprint that Alexander the Great follows, where Alexander the Great is brutal when he conquers, but then he also is, he, he basically finds ways to imbue everybody with his culture, to turn everybody into a Greek, um, and he does that by being alternately lenient and strict, depending on the things that are necessary. However, Alexander the Greek is dead by 32. He, he accomplishes an amazing amount in, in his youth, in the short time that he's king, and he doesn't die in battle. He dies because he overdrinks one night. We don't know exactly why, what exactly killed him. It might've been pneumonia. It might've literally just been alcohol poisoning. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that he has this revelry. He drinks, he drinks, he drinks, the next day he dies. Um, but up until that moment, he just runs over roughshod over the world. There is a fascinating story in Josephus where Josephus says that Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem and his followers expected him, his army expected him to just run roughshod over Jerusalem, but he doesn't. He stops in Jerusalem when he sees the high priest. The high priest of Jerusalem comes out to meet him and Alexander the Great sees him and he stops and he pays homage to the high priest. And his army says to him, his general say to him, what are you doing? You know, this is not you. Why are you giving homage to the high priest? And according to Josephus or Josephus's sources, Alexander the Great says to his generals, well, here's why. I had a dream about a month ago. And in that dream, this person appeared to me in the same vestments, these, these high priest garments that we see here on this man. And this person appeared to me in a dream and he said, go to Jerusalem 
and talk to the high priest there because the God of this high priest has granted you to conquer Persia, has granted you to be king of the whole world. So go talk to this priest. And so when he gets there and he sees this priest and recognizes the garments, he stops, he pays homage. And then according to Josephus, it gets better. The high priest brings out a copy of Daniel's chapter 10 through 12. They weren't labeled 10 through 12 at this point, but he brings out a copy of Daniel. He takes it to Alexander the Great and he says, this is you. Our God has decreed, this is you. You are this man who does whatever he pleases from Greece. And so we're not going to resist you because our God has put you in place. And of course, Alexander the Great, who is uh, nothing if not egotistical and narcissist, he totally thinks the priest is very smart and says, you are correct. I am that man. I will take over the world. Now, it did turn out he was, but this is an interesting story that Josephus tells, true or not, this is the story that he tells about Alexander the Great. Okay, so we keep going. After he has arisen, so, but despite all that, he gets this short sentence here in this passage. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So when Alexander the Great dies at 32, he doesn't, ha he has a few, he has three, in fact, potential heirs. None of them are fit to take his place um, for various reasons, which again, you can Google and read into, but, but literally they could not take his place. And so he doesn't have a descendant, he doesn't have an heir. And what happens is as he dies, that leads to a skirmish and it leads to four generals taking over four the, the, his, his entire kingdom and splitting it into four, a north, a south, an east, and a west. So literally like the four winds. And so these four generals now rule the Greek empire, but they're not together. They're no way as powerful as Alexander the Great was. If you were to go back to Aristotle, he would say once it went away from, you know, a dictatorship doesn't work as well as, uh, as if it's a group of people who are trying to rule with an iron hand because they're going to fight each other. And that's indeed what happens. The four generals, they kind of reach this compromise. They split up Alexander's kingdom, but then they never quite get along. And as the story goes forward from the angel, we don't even hear about the east and the west. We only talk about the north and the south. And the reason for that is because for the next several, I don't know, maybe a century, I think it's 130 years, somewhere in there, they, the north and the south fight each other over and over. And as they fight each other, guess who's in the middle? who's just sort of a plot of land that they keep running over, Jerusalem. So poor Jerusalem gets trashed by the ongoing battle between the general of the north and the general of the south. And that is what the angel's about to describe, that when Alexander the Great dies, his empire split up to the four winds, and then two of them, the north and the south, they battle each other. And um, if you think back to some of the visions that were had, remember there was the four horns, and there were, there were all these references to four, four things that would come out of Greece. Well, that's what these generals are. These are the four generals that Alexander the Great passed his reign on to. Um, if you're curious, the four generals are Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. The only two names you need to remember are Ptolemy and Seleucus because those are the north and the south. Those are the two generals that end up fighting over each other. And I, I repeatedly forget which is north and south, but we'll, we'll, I'll, I have notes in here that'll remind me as we go. So I'll tell you which is which. Um, it, I think we start, the king of south is Ptolemy, 
and the king of the north is Seleucus. So we'll see if we can hold on to that as we go forward. There's a lot of names here too. Everybody's a third and fourth and fifth. We'll see as we go. So the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. So at the beginning, as these four generals are, are, are sort of taking place, one of the ways that happens is the king of the south, which is Ptolemy, he takes control of Jerusalem, among other things in the south. And as he takes control of Jerusalem, he has his power, but he has a commander. He has a, a commander in his army who is Seleucus. And Seleucus becomes so powerful that he goes ahead and he takes over the northern areas from Ptolemy. And again, they, meet, they, they reach this sort of uneasy, very uneasy alliance in which there's a north and there's a south. And that's how you end up with those two generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus. So it says the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which are what we call the armies of Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Seleucids and the Ptolemies fight each other for the next 130 years. And as I mentioned, much of their battles, not because they care that much about Jerusalem, but because it happens to be in the middle of them, much of their battles take place over Jerusalem and they pass back and forth who owns the Holy Land over this period of time. They, they, they take the region and then the other one takes it back and then the other one takes it back. And it's all just on this attempt to push through. In fact, the real battleground they both won is Egypt, but Egypt happens to be south of Jerusalem. And so the North keeps trying to push all the way down to Egypt and the South keeps trying to push all the way back up past that. And so really Egypt is kind of the hotspot, but Egypt doesn't get near the battle scars that Jerusalem does because most of the battle takes place outside of Egypt, right around the Holy Land. Um, any questions? Because there's a lot here and it's gonna get worse. Any questions before I move forward? Okay. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. So, <laughs> so as time goes on, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, they have different leaders, right? Seleucus and Ptolemy, the original one, they die. They have kids. They rule. They take over. It kind of keeps going. And at a certain point, Antiochus II is king of the north. So he becomes the king of the north up there with the, which one's the north? The Seleucids. So Antiochus II becomes king of the north. And in order to try to get some lasting peace, some lasting alliance in this battle with the south that they have, he marries Berenice, who's the daughter of Ptolemy II. And Ptolemy II, as you can guess, was the son of Ptolemy. Um, and there is a brief peace. It works briefly. And that's what it says here. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. So they do. They marry. But, it then says, she will not retain her power. So, the daughter of the south goes to the king of the north thinking that this will form an allowance, an allowance, an alliance, and she will maintain her power and her position of power. But this says she will not retain her power. And exactly what happens in history is this. Ptolemy II dies, so her father dies. As soon as Ptolemy II dies, Antiochus sends Berenice away. He says, I don't really want you. I don't care about you. I just did this for political reasons, and now I see an opening because Ptolemy is dead. So he sends away Berenice, and he returns to his former wife, Laodicea. So, he's, so he sends her away. So that's the reference. She will not retain her power. But then it goes on. It says, and he, that's referring to the king here, to Antiochus II, he and his power will also not last. 
because as soon as Antiochus sends away Berenice and goes back to Laodicea, guess what Laodicea is like, what, what am I chopped liver? You only come back to me when I'm not, you know, when there's no political exigency. So she actually poisons uh, Antiochus II and kills him. So his power definitely doesn't list. She poisons her husband. It goes on, it says, in those days, she, I know it's easy to lose track, that she is referring to Berenice, the daughter that formed the alliance that was sent away. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. So what happens is Laodicea not only poisons her own husband, but she actually poisons, she kills Berenice, she kills Berenice's son, she kills anybody who supported Berenice. And if the scripture here is saying what I think it's saying, it may in fact be that she's the one who killed Ptolemy II in the first place, it's possible. So she kills all of them uh, so that they don't have any claim to the throne because her desire is to put her son on the throne. So, uh, so that's what happens historically. Laodicea has Bernice and her infant son killed along with her royal escort and anybody who supported her. And she did all this to put her own son on the throne. Her son is Seleucus II. Okay, so Seleucus II is now ruling in the north. Antiochus II is dead. He's been killed by his wife. In the south, Ptolemy II is dead, being killed possibly by someone in the north, possibly not. And Berenice is dead. But then it says this, one from her, and again, I know we've put a lot of history in the middle, so it's easy to miss, but if you read the text, this her still refers to the daughter of the South, that being Berenice, so the person who was betrayed, who's now dead. One from her family line will arise to take her place. So it turns out there was somebody that was not killed, but it's not one of her descendants. We'll read here in a second. It says, one from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the North and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. And for some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So somebody rises from the south who's connected to Berenice, who pushes back against the king of the north, steals a bunch of stuff, but doesn't completely vanquish him, but, but takes stuff back to Egypt. In other words, protects Egypt. But where is all this battle happening? Over the Holy Land, <laughs> over Jerusalem. And who is this? Well, it turns out, historically, Ptolemy III, who is the brother to Berenice, uh, avenges the murder of his sister. He's not really interested in politics, and that's why he only humbles Seleucus II by vanquishing and pushing him back, taking from him stuff, and returning to Egypt, because he doesn't really care about the war. He just wants to avenge his sister, and he does so. Then it says... The king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. So the king of the north, that being uh, so, uh, Ptolemy II, uh, the king of the north, no, Seleucus II, pardon me, king of the north, uh, invade, then comes back to invade, so they fight back, so he gets pushed back, then he comes back, it's just this battle back and forth, but while he's doing that, his own sons are preparing for war, and his sons are Seleucus III and Antiochus III, so we had Antiochus II, who was poisoned by his wife, Seleucus II, who took over for him, who was defeated briefly by Berenice's brother, he then comes back and pushes back against it, and while he's doing that, his own sons, Antiochus III and Seleucus III, 
are getting ready to amass a great army so that they can hopefully take Egypt, vanquish the south forever. So they assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. I think what we're saying here is he doesn't take Egypt, and historically that's true, but he does, I think the irresistible flood again refers to the position of Jerusalem. This is a flood over Jerusalem. This army comes across the Holy Land on its way to Egypt. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. So the south pushes back. So again, it's just this fighting back and forth. And as we do, we have different kings. Historically, now we're up to Ptolemy IV, who takes the land back again from Antiochus III. So Antiochus III pushes in, Ptolemy IV now pushes back out um, and pushes them back away from Egypt. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. Story of this battle. Nobody remains triumphant. So he, he's so pride, though, that he slaughters thousands. Question is, where is he slaughtering these thousands? Well, where is he pushing them back? Over the Holy Land. Where is he slaughtering the thousands? Over the Holy Land. So again, it's Jerusalem that is being completely sort of just overrun back and forth throughout all this. For the king of the north will muster another army. No big surprise. Why is the king of the south not ultimately triumphant? Because the king of the north isn't given up. So the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. So Antiochus III comes back, and he retakes the Holy Land with designs on Egypt from Ptolemy IV. So he comes back in, pushes back over Jerusalem. In those times, times many will rise against the king of the south. So in this battle, when the king of the north pushes back, it says that, that he has a lot of allies. He has people who will rise against him. Why? Probably because he slaughtered thousands, because in his pride, he slaughtered thousands, and he thought he was unstoppable. So people start pushing back. Those who are violent among your own people, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. In other words, some of the Jews in Jerusalem will push back also against the South. I think that without success here, it doesn't mean they don't succeed in pushing uh, Ptolemy the fourth back out. They do. Antiochus does take it. The problem is it's not a success for Jerusalem because Antiochus is no nicer to them. They still end up, uh, now they're just back under the king of the north. So even though they rebelled and, and kind of helped Antiochus, it doesn't help them. It doesn't give them any success. They don't get any freedom. They're not getting any victory. Now they're just under the king of the north again. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. Again, we don't know what city, but he's moving again towards Egypt. Maybe he's even coming to Egypt at this point. Um, or maybe he's in Jerusalem. Probably it will pass. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. And the forces of the south will be powerless to resist. And even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases and no one will be able to stand against him. And he will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. So establishing himself in the beautiful land does seem a reference to the Holy Land. So he's, gonna, he's moved forward enough north now that he is, he is he's completely taken over Jerusalem. He's now, this is, his, this is his new front, right? This is where he now sets up. Or maybe it's even better than his front. It's kind of his new center and the front's even further out. And so this is now where he stands. And he says he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. So now he's pushed up. He's gotten where he is. And now he decides, let's see if we can get a lasting influence. Let's see if I can get to a place where I can actually 
end this war, not really so much with a, with a treaty. Ultimately, we'll see in a second, he still wants to take over Egypt, but let's see if I can do it a little bit differently. And this is what he does. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom. So he's going to show up with all this force on Egypt's doorstep and say to the king of the south, I'll make you a proposal. And this is the proposal. And he will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. So here's what happens historically. Antiochus III, he gives Ptolemy, Ptolemy IV his daughter. His daughter's name is Cleopatra. This is not the famous Cleopatra. This is about 100 years before the famous Cleopatra. So if we want to follow naming convention, we can call this one Cleopatra I, if you want. But he's, uh, he's about to, so he gives his daughter Cleopatra to the king of the south, to Ptolemy IV, in hopes to gain control of Egypt. He's hoping to work through his daughter to actually take over Egypt, but to do it a little bit more through intrigue and a little bit less through a direct attack. Unfortunately, what history tells us is that this Cleopatra isn't even a little bit faithful to her Egyptian husband. She doesn't take this alliance very carefully, and so her husband doesn't either. He decides that she has no influence. She ends up with no influence because she doesn't really care to. So it's a completely, as it says in the scripture, his plans will not succeed or help him. It doesn't get him any entrance into Egypt. It doesn't do him any good. His influence is not any better as a result of this. So because of that, it says, then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. So this is what we know. After, let me make sure I got the right name here. Yes, Antiochus III. After Antiochus III fails to take Egypt through this new plan, by giving his daughter to Ptolemy IV. Antiochus then turns to the coastlands to uh, Greece and Asia Minor, um, but he doesn't manage to take over and he doesn't, he doesn't succeed. He's turned back by General Lucius Cornelius Scipio, if you care, um, and he is soundly defeated in the actual area of Greece, which they uh, should have been holding on to at this point. Antiochus returns back to his former regions. He's defeated, he's humiliated. In fact, history tells us he's so desperate at this point. He's losing power, he's losing wealth. He's so desperate that he actually resorts to pillaging a Babylonian temple and he's killed by civilians who are just outraged that someone is, is uh, pillaging their temple. So he's not even killed like by a mighty army, he just ends up being killed as kind of a common thief uh, pillaging a temple. His successor is Seleucus III. So Lucas, Seleucus III is son of Antiochus III. You see a lot of Seleucus and Antiochus in the following lineage. So his successor, it says in scripture, and we know this is Seleucus III, and we know that what it says he does, he does. It's pretty straightforward. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or battle. So what happens is they're running out of money. Pillaging the Babylonian temple didn't work. So Lucas III says, this is simple. We just need to tax our people. So he taxes the people, buys them a little bit of time. Doesn't make him popular though. He ends up being destroyed, not in battle or anger. What we know historically is that he's assassinated. And I think what this means is he's not killed because someone doesn't like him or is angry with him. And he's not killed in a glorious battle. He's just killed because somebody wants to take his place as throne, his throne. And so he is killed. He's assassinated by his brother. Antiochus IV, um, otherwise known as 
Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is an important figure in history and in scripture. So now we can call him Antiochus Epiphanes instead of Antiochus IV. Epiphanes is a name he gave himself. It means the illustrious. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Great, right? Alexander the Great. So he names himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Interestingly, there's a name, there's a word that's close to that. It's something like Amepanes. I'd have to look it up. I didn't write it down, which means Antiochus the Madman. And apparently, according to tradition, that's what people called him. Instead of calling him Antiochus the Illustrious, they called him Antiochus the, uh, the Lunatic, Antiochus the Madman. So Antiochus Epiphanes uh, takes over, and this is what it says about Antiochus Epiphanes, the person who, it says, the successor to Seleucus III, which we know as Antiochus Epiphanes. He will be succeeded, Seleucus, will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. In other words, he was his brother. He wasn't part of, he wasn't given the kingdom. He was, he was not chosen to be the successor. A contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty, he will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. We know historically that Antiochus Epiphanes, he is really that guy. He is the guy who takes over all sorts of things, not by battle, not by fighting, but by intrigue. He's, he's just this guy who's devious, he lies, he pretends an alliance, and then he betrays you stabs you in the back. I mean, think of whatever Game of Thrones or whatever your favorite sort of intrigue story. He's that guy. He's that villainous, sneaky, underhanded guy who's coming out on top because he just lies to people and then takes advantage of it when he can. Um, there's a little bit of cowardice in him, but there's also a lot of cunning in him. So we see Antiochus Epiphanes as a very, uh, let's see, unreliable person who uses guile and deceit to make alliances and then break them when convenient. And through that, he seizes the kingdom um, and he seizes uh, many other kingdoms. Goes on to say this about him. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. So here's what happens. Antiochus overwhelms the army of Ptolemy VI of Egypt, but he doesn't do this because he's got a great army. He does this because he sows dissension and he bribes people and he lies to people. And in very just the way we talked about, he ends up making things so bad on the inside for Ptolemy the fourth, the sixth rather, sorry, we're up to the sixth now. He makes things so bad for Ptolemy the sixth that he can't keep track of his own kingdom. And so the army is just in disarray. And so he overwhelms the army. It says here also the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Now, it just so happens that the other thing Antiochus does is he begins to use his intrigue in Jerusalem. So he begins to do things, and we're not even sure why. Scripture describes him as someone who just has a hatred for the people of the covenant. And historically, that appears to be true. But again, we don't know why. But what Antiochus Epiphanes does is that there's a high priest at this time. His name is Onias III. Even high priests now are, are, are getting lineages. So he, there's this high priest, Onias or Onias III. And there's this Jew. And all we know historically is this Jew's named Jason. So there you go. So there's this Jew named Jason who offers a bribe, who pays Antiochus to depose the high priest so that he can take over. So this is the state of things. Now we have high priests functioning like kings and people performing coups just to become high priests. Not the way this is supposed to happen, but it's all a mess in Jerusalem right now because they've just been overrun over and over and over. So the Jason pays a bribe to Antiochus um, to, and Antiochus agrees and deposes the priest Onias, and that's probably what it refers to here when it says the Prince of the Covenant will be destroyed. He destroys uh, Onias in about 172 BC. Um, as far as the, 
Uh, it says, after coming to an agreement with them, we will act deceitfully and with only a few people will rise to power. Now there's a couple other things that happen. Jason, uh, he makes this, this uh, agreement with Jason. Jason becomes the high priest and then Antiochus betrays him. Not a big surprise. Uh, we'll read about that in a second. That might be part of what's referred to here about I'm making an agreement or acting deceitfully. I think more likely though, it's referring back to Ptolemy VI. That this is again, getting into the details of how he destroys the, the army. He makes an agreement, he makes an alliance. We're gonna see that later for sure. He makes this fake alliance with Ptolemy VI. So that Ptolemy is, is trusting him. They sit down at the banquet together and he makes this alliance with him where he pretends to be on his side. And what he's saying he's gonna do is he's gonna help Ptolemy defeat one of his rivals in Egypt. So within Egypt, there's, as there is everywhere, there's people vying for Ptolemy's throne. So Antiochus says, let's work together. I'll let you keep the throne in Egypt and I'll help you overcome your rival. But it's all a trick. He's not gonna do that. He's really just getting an in here. So he, but he agrees to do that. He plots for that, but he's really only interested in the throne for himself. Says when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. What this is saying is that Antiochus, as he gets plunder, he doesn't use it to build armies like his ancestors did. He also doesn't use it to just enrich himself like some of the previous, like Darius did or sorry, like Xerxes did, what he does with his wealth is he uses it to pay off people. And what it's saying is that he begins to pay off people around Ptolemy. By making this alliance with Ptolemy, he gets in. He gets to around these people that are in the kingdom and he begins to pay them off and say, be loyal to me. When the time comes, betray your king. Here's your money, here's your wealth. And I'll give you more if you just do what I ask you to do. So he begins to distribute it among his followers. And that's what it says. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. And the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. So he has this huge army, but he won't be able to stand because there's too much intrigue going on. There's too many people willing to betray him because of the, the, the bribes. And this very next sentence describes that really well. It says, those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him his army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. Those who eat from the king's provisions, in other words, those who share his table, those that he trusts, they betray him. And because of that, his army is swept away and they betray him because Antiochus paid them off because he used his wealth to do that. So Antiochus prevails by getting close to those that, that, that are close to the king and he gets them to be on his side. And so when the king brings his army out to fight against Antiochus, it's not enough. And he's taken down from within. And Antiochus takes Ptolemy sort of, sort of prisoner. He doesn't take him away, but everybody knows who's in control. It says this, I think this is just a summary. The two kings, Ptolemy and Antiochus, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. I think this is just a summary. They go into all their alliances. They're doing all their deception. They're working against each other. They're trying to win each other, but really none of it matters because God's gonna bring everything to an end when it's time to bring it to an end. The king of the North will return to his own country with great wealth. He wins, he wins this battle. He takes spoils. He probably takes tribute and taxes from Ptolemy. He returns to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Why? Who knows? But it doesn't like Jerusalem. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. So he kind of takes a breather from Egypt. He comes back to, he's, he's, he comes back uh, to cause trouble in Jerusalem. And we know that this is what happens. 
So remember Jason, who is the high priest now because he paid Antiochus to make him the high priest? Well, not surprisingly, not long after Jason becomes high priest, there's another fellow named Menelaus who says, that worked pretty well. So he goes to Antiochus and he says, I'll pay you if you get rid of Jason and put me in his place. I mean, this could go on forever because once Antiochus is paid, he doesn't care who, who ends up in the priesthood after that. So Menelaus and Antiochus attack Jerusalem. It's said historically they kill 80,000 men, 80,000 male Jews, but they also kill women and children. So this is devastating. Um, it, they just, again, run Ralph shut over them, and he puts this Menelaus in, in, in the high priesthood. So this is what's happening in Jerusalem. Then it says, at the appointed time, he will invade the south again. So he takes some time in Jerusalem, then he's going to go back, try to get rid of the Ptolemites for good. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. So what happens is Antiochus now goes back to finish them off, but surprise, surprise, there's a new player in the field. It's ships from the coastland. It's the Romans. The Romans? What the heck? Who are the Romans? <laughs> well, the Romans are the next great conquering empire. And these two guys were so busy fighting each other. The Seleucids and the Ptolemites were so busy fighting it out, the north and the south over Jerusalem, they completely missed the fact that Rome is quietly and effectively taking over the world. And so when he comes back to conquer Egypt, Egypt has reached out to Rome and Rome has sided with them temporarily to make an alliance and they push back Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says he loses heart. Well, not only does he lose heart, he actually is forced in this battle to pledge allegiance to Rome. The story goes, they, dry, they, they, they basically conquer him where he stands in Egypt or at the border of Egypt. And they literally, the, the Roman general draws a circle around him in the sand. And he says, I'm not gonna let you leave that. This is so, this is so schoolyard bully, but this is apparently the story. He says, I'm not gonna let you leave that circle until you pledge allegiance to me and to Rome. If you pledge allegiance to Rome, you can leave that circle. Otherwise you're just gonna stand here forever. And literally surrounds him with an army. And eventually uh, Antiochus says, fine, you know, I, He's, he's a guy who's in the intrigue anyway. He's like, I'll pledge allegiance to whatever and whoever. So eventually he pledges allegiance to Rome. He goes back, but he's angry. And who's he going to take his anger out on? Well, he passes back through Jerusalem on the way. So this is about 168 BC. And he turns back. It says, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he goes back and he just goes after faithful Jews. And he leaves, and anyone who's willing to forsake that, he basically is, is making martyrs. He's, he's basically asking people to recant their Judaism. If they don't, he kills them. And if they do, then he'll show them favor. He'll let them live. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the day, daily sacrifice. So Antiochus comes to Jerusalem. He claims, again, true to Antiochus, he comes back and says, I come in peace. He pretends he's coming in peace. He comes on this peaceful mission and he ordered, but then as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, he orders his general to attack the Jews on the Sabbath, a day that he knows they will not, they're not prepared to fight back and probably won't fight back. 22,000 soldiers, they murder. There's no numbers. We don't know what the numbers are, but they must've been horrendous. He just kills probably much more than the 80,000 we read about before. He kills the Jews. He kills the men. He kills the women. He kills the children. He wants to Hellenize the Jews. So as I said, he wants to make them all Greeks. He wants to make them all Greek and cultural. He's no longer willing to let them 
continue with their Jewish worship, he begins to persecute specifically those who are faithful. He prevents them from following the Mosaic law. He forbids them. He says, you may not follow the Mosaic law anymore. He, in fact, burns all the copies of the law he can find. He does away with the sacrifices, the festivals, and the circumcision. So just like it says in the text here, he stops the daily sacrifices. They're no longer allowed to worship at all. It then says this, then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. We know that Antiochus does this as an attempt to insult them. What he wants to do, he could just destroy the temple, but he doesn't. What he does instead is he puts an image of Zeus on the outside of the temple, and he says, this is now Zeus's temple. On top of that, he takes a pig, and on December 16th, 167 BC, this is such an important moment for the Jews. We know the exact date. It is recorded. On December 16th, 167 BC, he sacrifices a pig, what's known as an unclean animal to the Jewish religion. He sacrifices a pig on the temple altar, and he decrees that Jews have to have to themselves sacrifice pigs on the 25th of every month to celebrate his birthday under threat of death. If they do not perform this abomination that he's already performed in the temple, they will die. This is our lovely friend, Antiochus Epiphanes. All right, before we move on and we'll wrap up here in just a couple minutes, any questions, any thoughts, any comments on all this? I find it fascinating that this is all being revealed to Daniel. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, and it must be overwhelming. I mean, even just for us to kind of go through it, we're like, there's so much going on. Daniel's hearing all this. He doesn't have the names we have. He doesn't have the history to look back on and say, this is how it all unfolds. And yet here it is all being revealed to Daniel. And, and we know it's a three or under 400 year process. He doesn't know. And I think one of the things that must be standing out to him is, it, this is this restoration of Jerusalem is going to be short-lived and it's not very great. I mean, we're, we're just going to be overrun over and over and over again. This is not good. What, what is happening here? You know, in some ways, this is not encouraging information. Not yet. It will be. Let's press on. Or go ahead. I, I looks like Meredith's about to unmute. Go for it. Well, he did have the other, like, um, revelations that did talk about um, things like being restored and everything coming and right. we are going to and we are going to get to those and and i do want to get to those before we stop for the evening so um because i want to leave on an uptick so here we go so here's what i want to say first about everything we've read this is all true this is amazingly accurate regarding antiochus epiphanies and so it all fits what happens over the next 400 years and yet in Matthew, Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation as something that has not yet happened. And yet, by the time Jesus is alive, Antiochus Epiphanes has already done this. So I think that we can see this is, again, one of those moments where the New Testament tells us this has a fulfillment during the 400 years of Daniel, but it also has a fulfillment in the future, according to Jesus. And so I think it is, in fact, a picture, a type of something to come. And if you think about it, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament are types of the Messiah, the Christ. So why not be a type? Why wouldn't there be a type in history of the Antichrist, the person who is sort of the, the anti-Messiah? And that is what Antiochus Epiphanes appears to be, an actual historical figure, like Daniel is historical, like, like Job is historical, like David is historical, like Ezekiel is historical. These were all types of Jesus to come, but they were also real people in their own right. And things they did reflected what Jesus would do in the future. 
in the same way as Antiochus Epiphanes may be a very precise type of the Antichrist to come, who also will stop the sacrifices, who also will rule through intrigue, and who also will set up an abomination of desolation in the temple. So I think that's sort of the, the picture that a lot of people have um, in our contemporary understanding of the end times, and it's plausible. It makes sense. Um, let me just keep going. Um, he goes on and he says this, and, and the passages that continue from here do seem to get bigger and bigger in the same way that Isaiah's prophecies sometimes start very plausible for what's happening in his time and then suddenly kind of explode. And you're like, whoa, this didn't happen yet. We kind of see some of that here, that a lot of what's described may describe Antiochus, but it seems to be describing something bigger as well, something that hasn't happened yet. And so here we go. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of his wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make him rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At that time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of the gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and the Cushites in submission. But the reports from the east and north will alarm him, and he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help them. And specifically chapter 12, while it's possible to read this as, as part of the troubling times that, that Israel is going to go through over the next 400 years, it begins even more to take on sort of the apocalyptic language of the ultimate restoration when everything will be made completely right. So let's read that quickly, and then we'll close there. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. Again, same language about Michael and the princes and all that. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. So it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But at the time, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who are and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is that apocalyptic promise of justice and redemption. This is what apocalypse is, apocalyptic literature is always ultimately about, that at the end, God will make everything okay. God's going to bring everything to bear. He goes on, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Roll up these words because everybody's going to be looking for what's coming, what's happening, what's the knowledge, what, how do we make sense of the times? And he's saying that part of it is in here in Daniel. Again, could be referring to Israel understanding the next 400 years, could be referring to us understanding what's to come. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others 
one on the bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Ooh, good question. Let's get some specifics there. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the rifter lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. That's not super helpful. I really, you know, how long will it be? Well, here's some strange language for you. The, the, the way this makes the most sense, and it does fit with Revelation, and it fits with things that we've already seen in Daniel 9, the way this makes this most sense is, I think anyway, is to understand that the question, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled, is not referring to everything he's just told Daniel. It's referring to the last things he said, the, the fact that those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens, those will lead many to righteousness like the stars. In other words, the question may be, once the terrible things start happening, once we go through the, the terrible tribulation you just mentioned, how long will that tribulation last before the redemption comes? And if that's the question, then time times and half a times could mean three and a half years. There is a sort of poetic you know, uh, plausibility to that. A time is a year, times would be two years, and a half a time would be half a year, leading you to three and a half years. People didn't decide that arbitrarily. The reason that makes sense to our contemporary understanding of end times is that three and a half years fits so many other prophecies of Daniel. Remember, he talked about the seven. There's this remaining seven to come. And he talked about the fact that halfway through that seven, there will be a betrayal by somebody, a ruler, and that betrayal will lead to the rest of that seven years being the worst ever, the tribulation. Well, half of seven is three and a half. Revelation also talks about time, times, and half a time, and seems to specifically say that it means three and a half years. So when you put all that together, it appears that the conversation that's being had now is they're saying, once the tribulation starts, how long do we have to suffer it? And the answer is three and a half years, and then the full restoration, the full redemption will come. I have to point out, this is not as great an encouragement to Daniel as it is to us. Because Daniel has just heard that for many, many years leading up to the three and a half years, Jerusalem is going to be suffering incredible tribulation and turmoil. And we know that Jerusalem, in fact, has suffered tribulation and turmoil for the entire history of the world ever since then. That it seems to never be done with it, um, which is, uh, uh, again, make of it what you will, part of God's plan, but in an odd way. Okay. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. This also is an interesting encouragement sideways. The point is, when will it end? When will the redemption and restoration comes? When it looks completely hopeless, when it's completely bleak. It's kind of like Jesus' death on the cross. When it looked like there was absolutely no way this was going to work out. Well, it's the same as going to be true for Jerusalem. When they look like they are completely on, when there's nothing left, when they are broken 100%, that's when the redemption will come. Why, why at that moment? Because then everybody will know it's God. Because everybody will know there's no other way they were going to come out of it at that point. Daniel says this, understatement of the century, I heard, but I did not understand. Yeah, no kidding, Daniel, we don't blame you. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? I love that question. Daniel's like, man, I don't understand most of what you just told me. Can you just tell me what the point is? Tell me what I should be left with. What should I take from all this? And he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. In other words, 
press on with your life, do what you do. I'm not telling you all these things to distract you. I'm not telling you all these things so that you won't be able to do what you're supposed to do. Keep living your life, keep doing what you're supposed to do. Most of this won't make sense, Daniel, until many years later. A lot of it we understand because we live after it. So there's, you're not gonna figure it out. You're not gonna figure it out. Go your way. But why did I tell you this? Because here's the summary. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will be continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So this is also where we get three and a half years. 1,290 days is 3.5 years at 360 days a year, almost. Not quite. In fact, interestingly enough, you get closer to that number if you go with 365 days a year. So maybe it's referring to a time when we count days as 365, but that is also not exact. So it at least gets us in the realm of three and a half years, but it's an interesting statement made not any more clear by the next line when he says this, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. Wait, if 1,290 is three and a half years, why, do we, why is there more blessing for waiting 45 more days? I don't know, who knows? I think like he tells Daniel, go about your life. Live your life, you're not gonna understand it. And then he repeats it. As for you though, there is a reason I told you all this. And there's a reason I think God wants us to know all this. As for you, go your way till the end. Live your life, do your thing, be you. Follow the path that God has given you. Don't get distracted, but know this, you will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. You'll die. <laughs> go about your life and someday you'll die. But, but after that, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. What's the bottom line? God's going to make it okay. God's going to work it all out. All the stuff, all the messiness, all the intrigue, all the nonsense, all the politics, all the grunge, all the battles, all the death, all the disease, all the injustice, all of it. Someday you'll rest from it. And then you'll receive your inheritance. You will get it. You will win. God will win. Redemption will come. Restoration will come. This is the point of all apocalyptic literature. And when Daniel says, what am I supposed to do with all this information? The answer is, live your life, but live it with hope. Live it with an understanding that you will receive the inheritance, that God will win. Keep pressing on. This is the point. Don't let these things distract you from going your way. Keep pressing on, but take heart in the fact that there will be rest and there will be inheritance after. And I think that's what we should take from the apocalyptic literature. I don't have any problem with people who try to sort it all out and figure out who the Antichrist will be, although so far we've always been wrong, as near as I can tell, um, because it doesn't seem to have happened yet. Um, I don't have a problem with that. But I do think that what God would say to us is go your way, live your life, understand these things, but the biggest point we should take from them is that restoration will come, redemption will come, justice will come, life will come. So that's Daniel 10 through 12. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, 
You can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.